on the southern highlands of New South Wales in eastern Australia, about an hour and a half drive from Sydney. The historic village of Berrima is a welcome site for travellers seeking to relax over a cup of tea and country-style scones before resuming their journey. Lush, laid-back Berrima is steeped in history and has many arts and crafts shops, a museum, an old courthouse, and Australia's oldest hotel. What one would not expect is that this quaint little country town is home to some of Australia's most notorious serial killers and murderers. The Berrima Courthouse is considered to be haunted by its past. There were trials of 12 convicted murderers held in Berrima Courthouse in the 1800s. Six offenders met their death by hanging at the jail across the road and we believe that some of them still haunt the grounds of the jail and courthouse up until today. In this episode, we're going to look at the two ghosts that are said to haunt the courthouse. And while these stories are from long ago, across the highway deep in the Belanglo State Forest, one of Australia's most publicised murder cases took place. Due to the detailed accounts of these murders, viewer discretion is advised. If you like your stories full of intrigue, whodunit, and unexplained true horror, then you made it. True Horror Podcast is all that. Pull up your bed covers, turn off the light, and get ready to hear the bizarre, the mortifying, and supernatural tales where you decide if there's truth in what you hear. It's commonly known that the old tenants, Lucretia Dunkley and her lover, Martin Beach, are the focus of the local ghost tours at Berrima Courthouse in New South Wales. This grisly duo was tried and sentenced at the courthouse in 1843 after Dunkley enticed Beach to viciously attack her sleeping husband Henry with an axe. The sheer brutality of their crimes shocked the entire colony of New South Wales. After the murderous couple went to the gallows at the jail across the street, their heads were given to a local surgeon to study, but later donated to Australia's museum in Sydney where they remain. Their bodies were buried upright in the jail's graveyard so they could never find eternal rest. During their prison time together, Beach got Lucretia pregnant. It was during the execution that the baby was aborted. The fetal skull of the infant was also sent to the museum. Henry Dunkley is buried on grounds now inside the Gunning Water Treatment Plant and his wife's headless ghost is said to haunt the pine trees around Berrima Courthouse and jail. His headstone reads, Cruelly and barbarously murdered by his wife and manservant on 13th of September 1842. At aged 40 years, he was cut down in his prime by a treacherous woman's hand. Lucretia Davies was baptised in 1807 at Glam Morgan in Wales, convicted of serious crimes in July 1831 and sentenced to life. She was transported to Australia the same year on the ship Pyramus and in 1834 married Henry Dunkley in an All Saints church at Sutton Forest. 
1842, paroled convict Martin Beach came to work on the Dunkley farm near Gunning and became Lucretia's lover. Gunning was then a remote rest stop on the old Hume Highway, which linked Sydney and Melbourne. The surrounding hills were notorious bushranger country. In mid-September 1842, Henry Dunkley went missing and within days neighbours turned their attention to the behaviour of Lucretia and Beach. It's believed Dunkley was 43, not 40 as the tombstone suggested, his wife about 37 and Beach about 34. The Herald newspaper covered the case in great detail and proclaimed that the murder turned out to be one of those deep-laid preconcerted acts of human butchery which occasionally takes place to the disgrace of human nature. The Dunkley's neighbours had seen Lucretia and Beach come home early one morning, very dirty as if they'd been working in a clay hole. Suspicions were further raised when the pair could not adequately explain themselves. Eventually, Lucretia confessed. It had been on the night of September 13, when Beach had entered the room where the Dunkleys were in bed together. He lit a candle and set it down on the table beside the bed. He then swung his axe high and then into the forehead of the farmer, who was sleeping soundly. As Lucretia pretended to be hysterical, Beach at this precise moment claimed he had murdered another man in his home country in Ireland and had never been caught for that crime. He then struck Dunkley twice more with the axe. Beach struck his victim on the neck and breast and the force of the blows broke even his backbone, the blood pouring out all over the bed and the wall near the bed. At this horrible part of the tragedy, Lucretia took from underneath the bed a pan and held it to receive the gore from the mangled body of her husband, in order to prevent any traces of the blood from being discovered. The body was next sewed up in a sack and carried to the brink of a neighbouring waterhole. It was there that they dug a grave and the body was placed in it. The murderers then went back to the house and removed from the bed, walls and floor every single trace of blood, after which they prepared a hearty breakfast of tea, bread, bacon and eggs and sat down to eat it as if nothing they had just done had happened. It is said that Henry Dunkley had been well known and generally liked in the community and his gruesome premeditated murder was a shock that sent waves throughout the small town. Lucretia Dunkley and Martin Beach were arrested and remanded in custody to await trial. The couple was arrested at Bradley and Shelley's Mill on Bungonia Road in Goulburn after driving there to sell a load of Henry Dunkley's wheat. Descriptions of Dunkley's murder became even more graphic as news spread through the colony of what his wife and her lover had done. One newspaper reported on Dunkley's death under the headline, Horrible Murder of a Husband by His Wife. From what has transpired today, there is not perhaps on record a more revolting murder than has just been committed here, it stated. In February 1843, it was reported prison matron Mrs. Foster had found the pair in bed together, which would later explain the unknown pregnancy of Lucretia Dunkley. Beach and Dunkley pleaded not guilty to murder and were tried before a jury at the Berrimer Courthouse in September 1843. 
One reporter described her as an elderly woman of a most forbidding aspect and him as a tall, powerful-looking young fellow. During the hearing, Dunkley made regular outbursts and abused Crown witnesses, saying of one, That woman would hang Jesus Christ, let alone me. Beach appears to have remained calmer during the process, and his whole demeanour showed great indifference to the result. A jury quickly found the pair guilty of murder, and Chief Justice James Dowling seemed to relish sentencing them to death. The judge described the pair as monsters of human depravity and said an adulterous murderer such as Dunkley would have in earlier times been burnt alive. He concluded by saying that the devil himself had for a time assumed the female form. Your demeanour, even in this closing stage of the proceedings, leaves no room to doubt that you are still possessed by the same diabolical spirit. Chief Justice Dowling ordered the pair to be taken to a place of public execution on a date to be set by the governor and hanged by the neck until the bodies were dead. Dunkley leaned her head on the rail of the dock while receiving her sentence and shook slightly during the most damning parts of the judge's address. Both prisoners responded by claiming they had not had a fair trial and neither showed any sign of remorse. Dunkley and Beach were put to death at Berrima Jail on October 16, 1843. She was the only woman ever hanged in the prison. Now, almost 200 years later, you can be part of a ghost tour that involves a mock trial of the events that took place in the courthouse when this monstrous couple were brought to trial. It is reported that Lucretia's headless ghost haunts the grounds and courthouse frequently, and that she's not fond of women. Most of the sightings have been by men who say she touched their face, leg or even bottom are the most common stories told. The ghost tours use a method favoured by paranormal investigators. It's called the Gansville Experiment, a sensory deprivation experiment where cameras record any visitations from a lifeless lurker. The way it works... Four minutes alone in a holding cell. While taking a tour of the courthouse, the participants waited eagerly, some more scared than others, knowing that this was one of the most haunted places in Australia. Suddenly, the door stopper on the courtroom door went flying with no one anywhere near it, and the door slammed shut. Is there someone with us tonight? asked Perry, the courthouse tour guide. Her question floats above everyone until unexpectedly, a screeching, shocking sound fills the courtroom. Everyone collectively jumps. Give us a nice clear answer, please, commands Perry. Is there someone with us? Lucretia. There's a voice back through the static. Every participant holds their breath. Lucretia, is your name Lucretia? Were you in jail here, Lucretia? Muffled static again, followed by another startling sound far off. A shriek is heard. Every single one of the people in the courthouse stood still, but in their minds were racing thoughts of, can this be right? Is this real? What, it, it, what is happening? What town are we in, Lucretia? says Perry, 
was the clear reply through the faraway static. An audible gasp runs through the group. They all stay stock still as Perry tries to entice the monosyllabic Lucretia to converse some more. But she is no longer in the mood to chat, and suddenly it feels like it's getting colder in the room by the second. Everyone remains frozen. But when the chance to be in a holding cell comes up, the group divides. Some leap at the chance to do the experiment, to hear Lucretia more, while others opt out and leave the tour, fleeing the halls of the courthouse back to the land of the living. On a typical ghost tour of Berrimer Courthouse, these kind of events are more usual than not. To this day, many come to see and witness the ghosts of the most haunted courthouse in Australia. He roamed the Berrimer district almost a century and a half before the term serial killer was coined, murdering at will until he was finally brought to justice tried at the Berrimer Courthouse and put to death on the gallows in the Berrimer Jail. The extraordinary story of the Berrimer Axe Murders and the ultimate capture of John Lynch, convict, bushranger and serial killer, began on the morning of February 19, 1841, when a drover, Hugh Tinney, on his way to Sydney with a team of bullocks, stopped near the Ironstone Bridge just outside Berrimer and noticed a dingo rummaging around a pile of brush trying to get at whatever was concealed beneath. Closer inspection revealed the body of a man whose skull had been pulverized at the back, suggesting that he had been bashed to death with a heavy blunt instrument. The man was lying on his back with a smile on his face, indicating that he had been in good humor when attacked from behind and had no idea what hit him. From items found on the body, he was identified as a local farmhand named Kearns Landrigan, who was last seen in the company of a farmer named Dunleavy when the pair had dinner two nights earlier at the Woolpack Inn, not far from when Landrigan's body was discovered. The trial led to a nearby farm once owned by the Mulligan family, but now owned by John Dunleavy, who had allegedly bought it from the Mulligans for a mere £700 before the family of Mr. and Mrs. Mulligan and their teenage daughter and son had mysteriously packed up and left town without telling a soul. The barmaid from the Woolpack Inn identified the mysterious farmer Dunleavy as a local, whose real name was John Lynch. With that and other irrefutable evidence gathered by the police, on February 21, 1841, John Lynch was charged with the murder of Kearns Landregan. Even in the light of the overwhelming evidence against him, Lynch steadfastly maintained his innocence in the belief that he would be exonerated and freed. On March 21, 1842, just more than a year after he was charged, Lynch appeared before the Chief Justice of New South Wales, Sir James Dowling, at Berrimer Courthouse. It took the jury only an hour of deliberating to find him guilty of murder. After the guilty verdict was handed down, the court heard that Lynch was also implicated in the murder disappearances of at least eight other individuals. The court also heard that Lynch had narrowly escaped the gallows in 1835, when as an active bushranger, he had been incriminated in a murder committed in the district, 
had admitted his guilt, but had come out of it miraculously unscathed. But that was not to be the case this time. Sir James Dowling had no hesitation in sentencing Lynch to death by hanging. Before passing the sentence, Justice Dowling said, John Lynch, the trade in blood which has so long marked your career is at last terminated, not by any sense of remorse or the appetite for slaughter on your part, but by the energy of a few zealous spirits roused into activity by the frightful picture of atrocity which the last tragic passage of your worthless life exhibits. It is now credibly believed, if not ascertained, that no less than eight other individuals have fallen by your hands. How many more have been violently ushered into the next world remains undiscovered. Save it in the dark pages of your memory. By your confession, it is admitted that as late as 1835, justice was invoked on your head for a willful murder committed in this immediate neighborhood. Your unlucky escape on that occasion has, and it would seem, whetted your relish for human gall, but at length you have fallen into toils from which you cannot escape. John Lynch stood unmoved in the dock, a smirk of a defiant indifference on his face as the judge announced, You are sentenced to be hanging by the neck until you are dead. But not even the harsh words from the judge and the death sentence could dampen the optimistic Lynch's belief that he would be reprieved and eventually set free. After all, God had led him this far. Why would he desert him now? Lynch steadfastly clung to the story that he was innocent and only after every avenue of appeal was exhausted did John Lynch confess to his crimes. In his confession, Lynch said that he believed he had gone about his robbing and killing under the watchful, approving eye of God. Only when there was no hope left did he lose his faith in the Lord. On the eve of his execution, John Lynch called a priest and police magistrates to his cell to witness his full confession. It was a confession that rocked the fledging colony of New South Wales and ensured John Lynch's place forever in the chronicles of Australian crime. A diminutive but solidly built man of just five foot three with a fair rugged complexion and brown hair, John Lynch was just 19 when he arrived in Australia in 1832 on the convict ship Dunregan Castle after being sentenced to the deportation for stealing offences in County Cavan Island where he was born. After working as a convict labourer at numerous farms in the area, he joined a renegade gang and became a bushranger which involved highway robbing and stealing throughout the countryside and selling his ill-gotten gain around the district. John Lynch had a close shave with the hangman in 1835 when he was charged with the murder of Tom Smith shortly after Smith had given evidence against Lynch's gang. Lynch and two other bushrangers were tried for Smith's murder and even though he had admitted to taking part in killing Smith, the jury chose not to believe him and he was set free while the other two bushrangers were found guilty and sentenced to hanging. The farmer Mulligan had purchased land that Lynch had stolen during his bushranger exploits. In his confession, Lynch maintained that a dispute with Mulligan over the price of stolen items started him on his career as multiple murderer. Lynch had asked Mulligan for payment for some stolen goods, but Mulligan was only prepared to pay about a quarter of what Lynch was asking. 
A bitter argument ensued and Lynch stormed off swearing revenge. Ironically, he went to a farm at nearby Albury where he had once worked for the owner T.B. Humphrey and stole an eight bullock team and drove them off. I broken them myself, Lynch said in his confession. I took them because I wanted to start again. Honest, I intended to take the bullocks to Sydney and sell them. But it didn't take long for Lynch to forget about his honest new start and lapse back into crime. At Razorback Mountain, Lynch said, I met a lad named Ireland and I fell in with him. Ireland was travelling with an Aboriginal boy and together they were driving a full bullock team and its load of wheat, bacon and other produce to Sydney to deliver it to its owner, Thomas Cowper, who was a stranger to Lynch. It seemed to me, said Lynch in his confession, that it would pay me better to kill Ireland and take possession of the dray and its load of saleable produce than to drive Mr Humphrey's bullocks to Sydney. Ireland took quite a liking to the diminutive Irishman Lynch, and when they pulled up for the night, he prepared him dinner and finished the evening off with one of Ireland's cigars. All the while, Lynch was plotting to murder Ireland and his young helper and make off with their wares. According to Lynch's confession, he lay awake that night asking God what to do. Lynch didn't say whether God gave his blessing to the forthcoming massacre, but Lynch said that having consulted God was as good as getting the go-ahead. The following morning, Lynch asked the boy to help him round up his bullocks. The lad was happy to oblige. As the boy walked ahead in the scrub and well away from the camp, Lynch crept up behind him and smashed the back of the lad's head in with a tomahawk. All it needed to kill him, Lynch said, was just one tap with a tomahawk. He dropped like a log of wood. Lynch returned to the camp to find Ireland preparing breakfast and rather than murder the unsuspecting farmhand immediately, he explained that the boy had gone looking for the bullocks and they should eat without him. When Ireland was about to serve breakfast, Lynch distracted him and when Ireland's back was turned, Lynch cracked his head open with the tomahawk. As the man lay dead at his feet, Lynch woofed down a hearty meal before dragging the bodies to a cleft between two rocks and covered them with brush and stones. Then Lynch pointed the team of bullocks and a dray in the direction of Berrimer and set them loose, anticipating that someone would round them up and return them to the Oldbury farm and nothing would come of it. He then took possession of Ireland's team, which was carrying the farm produce. Believing the Lord was looking out for him, Lynch was in no hurry and remained at the camp for two days. On the second day, he was joined by two extra men named Lake and Lee, who were in charge of a team of horses. Lynch said he enjoyed the company of the two men, and they ate, drank, and sang well into the night. The men even performed an Irish jig for Lynch's entertainment. For these reasons, Lynch didn't murder them with his tomahawk as they slept. The following morning, blissfully unaware of their narrow escape from death, Laig and Lee invited Lynch to travel behind them for company, an offer he readily accepted. As they approached Liverpool on the outskirts of southern Sydney, Lynch nearly died of shock when a man canted his horse alongside the dray that Lynch was driving and asked him what he was doing driving his team. The man was Thomas Cowper. As quick as a flash, Lynch smiled at the man and said, I'm glad I've seen you. I was just wondering whether I'd knock it into you. The fact is that your man Ireland was taken ill back there and begged me to take the load to Sydney for you. He said I'd probably meet you somewhere along the way. 
when Lynch explained that Ireland was very ill and that he had left the boy to look after him at the camp, Cowper expressed his gratitude that Lynch had taken a load of perishables ahead towards Sydney. He was even more grateful when Lynch agreed to continue to Sydney with the dray and its load while Cowper went back and looked for Ireland. Silently thanking the Lord for looking after him through his close call with Cowper, Lynch arranged to meet Cowper in Sydney in a few days' time. He pushed on with the Bullock team until he caught up with Laig and Lee. They parted company at the junction of Liverpool Road and Dog Trap Road when the two men turned in the opposite direction and headed towards Parramatta. By driving all day and night, Lynch reached Sydney two days before his scheduled time to meet Cowper. He knew he had no time to lose because when Cowper couldn't find his missing employees, he would come looking for Lynch. Lynch employed the services of a drunk to sell the product so that he could not be incriminated at a later date, and if questioned by police could stick to his story about Ireland being taken ill, adding that the product had been stolen from the back of the dray while it had been unattended. Pocketing the cash from the sale, Lynch headed out of town south along the Illawarra Road toward the Berrima Road. Then he had another shock that further convinced him the Lord was on his side. As I neared the George's River, I saw Chief Constable McAllister of Campbelltown. Fearing he'd recognise me, I turned into a cross-track leading towards the Berrima Road, Lynch said in his confession. This close shave sh- frightened the living daylights out of me, and I decided that I would get rid of Cowper's team at the first opportunity, as it could only eventually get me into trouble. As Lynch approached Razorback Mountain, where he had killed Ireland and the boy, he met the phrases a hard-working father and son who were making their way toward Berrima with a team owned by G. Borden. Lynch took an immediate fancy to the team and from the minute he was in the Fraser's company began plotting the duo's death and the theft of their team. He travelled with the Fraser's to a campsite at the Bargo Brush where two married couples were already camped. We all had supper, Lynch said. Then I crawled under my dray to sleep. No sooner had I got there than I saw a trooper ride into the camp. He asked Fraser if he'd had seen the dray I had stolen from Cowper, and Fraser shook his head, and he said he didn't know anything about it. The trooper didn't see me under the dray, Lynch said, and much to my surprise he rode off. Lynch said that his escape was nothing short of a miracle since the Cowper dray couldn't have stood out any more if it had been painted bright pink. Yet again, the Lord had intervened and saved Lynch from capture. He believed he was invincible and could go on killing as he desired. Lynch claimed to have consulted with the Lord, who told him that, in light of his narrow escape, the Frasers had to be killed and their team to be stolen. During the night, Lynch set his bullock team free. My team appears to have strayed, Lynch told the Frasers in the morning. I'll have to go home and fetch another one, eh? Meanwhile, I'd... Better hide the dray. Could you give me a hand? The unsuspecting Frasers were only too happy to assist John Lynch, unbeknownst to them that he was going to murder and rob them. After the three men had hidden the dray, Lynch said, I helped them hitch their horses to their car and we drove out of Bargo Brush. They agreed to let me travel as near the place as possible where I was supposed to live. In the morning, young Fraser and I went in search for the horses, said Lynch. I put on my coat to hide the tamahawk. I let the youngster go ahead. Then when we were in the bush, I thought to myself, there's no difficulty in settling him. So I crept up behind him and hit him with one blow and the young fella fell like a log of wood. 
Lynch hid the boy's body beneath some wood and returned to the camp with one horse. The elder Fraser inquired about the whereabouts of his son. When they told him he was looking for the other horse, Lynch said, he, be he became a little bit agitated, not because he suspected I killed the boy, but because horses had never strayed before. Lynch distracted Fraser by pointing to what he said was his son in the bushes, and when the man turned to look, he hit him. <laughs> nice went on the back of the head, and he also dropped like a log of wood. Thanking the Lord for his assistance in murdering the father and son, Lynch dragged their bodies into the bush and buried them in a shallow bush grave. He hitched their team of horses onto the dray and headed toward the Mulligan farm to settle an old score. As he rode up to the farmhouse, he saw Mrs Mulligan sitting in a rocking chair on the porch. She asked where he had gotten the horses and Dre, and he replied that they had belonged to a man in Sydney. Lynch inquired about the whereabouts of her husband, son and daughter, and Mrs Mulligan told him that they were in the fields working. "'What do you want?' the woman asked. "'The thirty pounds your husband owes me,' he replied. "'What thirty pounds?' she asked. "'You know very well what, for the articles which I got from burglaries and highway robberies, I did at the risk of my life and which your old man was supposed to be holding for me,' Lynch said. "'There's only nine pounds in the house,' Mrs Mulligan replied, giving Lynch the impression that she was fobbing him off until she could talk to her husband. In his confession, Lynch said, "'I was much discouraged by her putting me off, but I didn't show it. Being a fair man, I decided to wait until her husband returned and gave him the chance to pay me my money, and if he refused, then I would see to it that he would get to meet the Almighty.'" Lynch then elected to walk to the Black Horse Hotel at Berrima and buy some rum in the belief that it would get Mulligan in the right frame of mind to pay him the money. On his return, he saw Mr and Mrs Mulligan together on the veranda and they greeted him in a friendly manner. Mrs Mulligan fetched glasses for the rum and they sat on the veranda drinking and chatting. Lynch eventually brought up the matter of the £30 and Mr Mulligan asked him to be reasonable about the amount. Lynch left the veranda and sat brooding on a log nearby, deep in consultation with the Lord about what he was going to do next. And the Lord gave Lynch his blessing to murder them. After Mr Mulligan had returned to the fields and Mrs Mulligan had disappeared into the house, Lynch lured their young son Johnny into the woods on the pretext of cutting some wood for his mother. Once out of sight, Lynch killed the boy with a single blow from his axe at the back of his skull, covered his body with brush and returned to the farmhouse. Where's Johnny? Mrs Mulligan inquired. Gone to the paddock with the horses, Lynch said. Lynch thought Mrs Mulligan suspected that he had murdered her son because she became hysterical and told Lynch to fire his gun to attract attention. What's all the urgency? He asked. He's all right, I only saw him a few minutes ago. But the woman insisted that Lynch shoot his gun, indicating to anyone within earshot that all was not well. But if I do that, I'll, I will alert the police, Lynch said as Mr Mulligan appeared and asked what was going on. Both the Mulligans were suspicious now. In fright, Mrs Mulligan returned to the house while her husband headed to the woods in search of his missing son. He didn't get far. Lynch ran up behind him and with one swing of the axe attacked him. After dragging the body into the woods, Lynch saw Mrs Mulligan coming toward him. He tripped her up and killed her with one blow to the head from the axe. Lynch knew that the Mulligan's 14-year-old daughter was in the house, and as he entered, he saw her standing in the kitchen in terror. She had seen at least one of the murders. I saw her standing behind a table, holding a butcher's knife, Lynch confessed. 
She was sobbing with fear and trembling violently. I hadn't been prepared for this, so I just stood there just staring at her. Then I yelled, put that knife down. But she didn't move, so I yelled again, put that knife down. She stiffened her eyes, bulging fearfully from their sockets, and with a strange animal noise like squealing from her tightly compressed mouth. The lobes of her nostrils were flared, and she stood there impotent with terror. Put that knife down, I told her. I don't want to kill you, but if I let you live, you'll only put me away. I then ordered her to get down on her knees and pray as she only had ten minutes to live. Lynch then took the terrified young girl into the bedroom and repeatedly raped her. I then brought her back out into the kitchen and tried to comfort her, saying that life was full of terrible and, you know, trouble, and that she'd be better off dead. Then I mercifully distracted her attention, and as she turned away, I struck her with the axe, and she fell dead without a murmur, he confessed. Lynch then assembled the Mulligan's family's bodies in the bush and set them alight atop a huge pyre. They burnt like bags of fat, he said. From then on, Lynch's confession dealt with how clever he was at getting rid of the Lynch's possessions and taking over the farm as if it were his own. Every personal item and all of the dead family's clothing were burned. Then he inserted an advertisement in the Sydney Gazette stating that Mrs Mulligan had left the family home without her husband's consent and that he, John Mulligan, wouldn't be responsible for her debts. The ad gave the impression that the Mulligans had broken up which would explain why the farm had been sold. Next, Lynch, again under the name of John Mulligan, wrote to all his creditors telling him that he had sold the farm to John Dunleavy for £700, and Dunleavy had taken responsibility for any outstanding debts. Then he forged a deed of assignment stating that John Mulligan had signed over the farm and all its effects to John Dunleavy. With all in order, Lynch became Squire Dunleavy and considering that he was well known throughout the district, he still managed to move about freely, though under the name of John Dunleavy, without anyone becoming suspicious about the name change. Lynch probably couldn't be blamed for thinking that the good Lord truly was looking after him. Lynch even hired a couple, Terence and Clara Burnett, to run the farm for him while he took the produce to the markets. The bodies of the four other people he had murdered hadn't been discovered and no one seemed to be looking for them. The next six months, Lynch lived in a charmed existence and had it not been for his murder of the Irishman Kearns Lendragon, he might have lived his life on the Mulligan's farm without anyone being the wiser. John Dunleavy, aka Lynch, was a good farmer who was loved by his staff and trusted by his creditors and was from all accounts a gentle and considerate man. The only reason that Lynch could give as to why he committed his ninth murder, leaving clues and witnesses all over the district, was that he was convinced that he was under the protection of a supreme being and beyond capture. The normally thorough Lynch hadn't even gone to the trouble to prepare an alibi for the Landragon killing. In Lynch's confession, he described the circumstances leading up to the murder. He said that he met Landragon on his way back from Sydney and offered him a job fencing on his farm. As they passed Crisp's inn, Lendragon hid and explained to Lynch that he didn't want to be seen because Crisp had summonsed him for stealing a bundle of clothes. After I heard that, I was determined to get rid of him, said Lynch, despite his own history of theft and armed robbery. Perhaps he had been then truly transformed himself into the respectable farmer John Dunleavy, who thought thieving was best sentenced to death. 
after they had dinner together at the Woolpack Inn, which was witnessed by all of the staff and numerous patrons, Lynch drove Lendragon to the Ironside Bridge, where they set up camp for the night. As Lendragon sat on a log, chuckling away to himself at a joke that Lynch had told him, Lynch snuck up behind him and cracked him over the head of the skull with his tomahawk. But the huge man didn't die with the first blow. He rolled to the ground, unconscious with a smile still on his face. It took a couple more blows to smash in the back of his skull and kill him. Lynch then took 40 pounds from the dead man's pockets. John Lynch was later hanged at Berrimer Jail on April 22, 1842. To this day, John Lynch is still said to be one of the ghosts that haunt the Berrimer courthouse and jail. With the gruesome tally of nine victims, John Lynch is Australia's most prolific individual serial killer. Yet that is debatable when close by in the Belanglode State Forest, the backpacker murders took place during the 1980s and 90s. Born in 1944 in Australia, Ivan Milat would later serve seven life sentences for being a convicted serial killer. The murders were so brutal and horrifying that the gruesome details of Milat's life inspired the horror movie Wolf Creek. Milat killed seven backpackers in the Belanglo State Forest over a span of four years. Milat lived in the area his whole life and picked off travellers who were often alone or in need of a ride. The details of this terrifying real case include violent deaths, burials in shallow graves, and even a copycat crime committed many years later by Malat's great-nephew Michael. Malat was incarcerated in a maximum security wing of Goulburn Prison, serving seven consecutive life sentences plus 18 years without parole. He is considered to be one of Australia's most notorious serial killers and the story of the backpacker killer is sure to leave a haunting impression. In 1971, when he was 27, Malat was arrested for raping two hitchhikers. The woman said he threatened them with a knife during the attack. Since this was before DNA evidence was used in court, Malat was found not guilty by a jury. Things may have turned out differently had he been found guilty and sentenced to prison. Belanglo State Forest is located between Sydney and Canberra in the southern part of Australia. It is a popular place for outdoor recreation filled with camping spots, creeks to fish in, and paths designed for four-wheel drive vehicles. It is also the place where Malat encountered and murdered at least seven people. He lived nearby and reportedly chose the area because he knew the terrain and its many places to hide bodies. Joanne Walters and Carolyn Clark were the first of Malat's victims to be found in Belanglo State Forest. Both were British tourists backpacking throughout Australia. Their bodies were discovered in September 1992. The two women had left London hoping to spend an extended period of time in Australia, possibly working as fruit pickers, but after leaving Sydney in April 1992, they were never seen alive again. Hikers first found Walters, who was buried in a shallow grave. The next day, police officers located Clark. 
Walters had been stabbed 14 times, once in the neck, nine times in the back, and four times in the chest. Clark was shot multiple times, and police believe she might have been used for target practice based on the grouping of the bullets. James Gibson was an Australian visiting the area from his hometown of Melbourne. He was travelling with his girlfriend Deborah Everest when they both disappeared in 1989. Gibson's belongings were found in Galston Gorge near the side of the road that same year. Malat had an inclination for picking up hitchhikers, which led some to believe the couple was trying to hitch a ride. Gibson's skeletonized remains were found in Belanglo State Forest in October 1993. Forensic researchers discovered that James's spine had been severed by a sharp blade. He had also been stabbed upwards of eight times. Everest was stabbed once in the back, but according to forensic experts, that did not kill her. Instead, she was beaten to death. Her skull and jaw were both fractured in multiple places. Australian Police Sergeant Jeff Trichter found the bodies of Anya Hubschild, Gabor Nugambaur and their friend Simone Schmiedel in the same area of Belanglo State Forest. They were all visiting Australia from Germany and had gone backpacking in the forest. They were last spotted hitchhiking in 1991. Habshield's body was found in a shallow grave, stabbed eight different times. She had also been decapitated. To this day, her head has not been found. Neugenbauer had been killed with a gun and he was shot in the head six times. Three of the gunshots entered at the base of the skull and would have killed him instantly. Malat stabbed Schmidl eight times, two of which severed her spinal cord. The other wounds were to her heart and lungs. Unlike her friend's bodies, Schmidl wasn't buried. Instead, Malat left her on the ground in the same area to rot. It was British man Paul Onions who was backpacking in Belanglo State Forest when he encountered Malat. According to Onions, Malat picked him up on the side of the road while he was hitchhiking to his destination. At first, Malat, who told Onions his name was Bill, seemed nice. They chatted the entire way to the forest. Onions was on his way to Victoria, but at the entrance of the woods, Malat pulled over, saying he wanted to look for a cassette tape. It was at that point that Onions became leery of his companion. Just then, Malat pulled out a revolver, told Onions he was going to rob him and then wrestled him to the ground. Malat let out a shot but missed Onions, who kept running down the road. He threw himself into the path of an oncoming car, jumped into the back seat and told the woman to keep driving. Onions eventually testified against Malat. After police arrested Malat in 1994, they found his house was full of items from the victims he killed. He had their cameras, wallets, pieces of their clothing and their camping gear. Police also recovered several photographs of Malat dated in 1991 that showed him carrying items belonging to his Australian victims, Deborah Everest and James Gibson. The creepiest part though is that police believe Malat wore some of his victims' clothes. There are even reports that Malat gave one of Carolyn Clark's shirts to his girlfriend at the time. Upon searching Malat's house, police found a large stockpile of weapons. Malat had a love of weaponry. He was constantly photographed with guns and had a large collection of his own. One of his guns was an exact match to the murder weapon, a 22 caliber rifle, 
which helped seal Malat's conviction. He also had several large knives, at least one of which was used to kill the backpackers. After killing his victims, Malat buried the bodies in an eerily similar way, for reasons he has never disclosed. First, he would put them face down on the ground with their hands behind their back. He would then build a pyramid on their back made of sticks and ferns. He always buried his bodies close to the fire trails but not necessarily designated paths, and the first bodies were found completely by accident. Malat's official body count stands at seven. However, since he didn't plead guilty, nor did he give an official statement to the police, there is no way of knowing how many people he killed. Malat maintained his innocence, shifting the blame to his brother Richard. The Belanglo State Forest, near Berrimer, Australia, where the bodies were found, consists of plenty of places to hide bodies, which means that some of Ivan's victims might not have yet been discovered. Many believe Malat had help in killing his seven victims, with one possible co-conspirator being his sister. Judge Justice David Hunt said after Malat's trial that he was convinced the killer could not have done his crimes alone, and a juror on the case made similar claims after the trial. Malat's own lawyer pointed at both Malat's brother and his sister, who shared a house with Malat at the time of the killings. One key piece of evidence indicting Malat's sister, theorists say, is that cigarette butts were found near the body of Carolyn Clark. Malat was not a smoker, but his sister was. Police said they interviewed the sister on several occasions, but had no reason to believe she was directly involved. However, new forensic evidence unveiled in July 2008 suggests that Malat acted alone. Strands of hair found in victims Joanne Walter's hand were revealed to be her own, not that of an unnamed accomplice. The way in which the hair was positioned in Walter's hand suggests that she was protecting her face during her final moments. After spending less than one year in Maitland Jail Prison, Malat and one of his fellow inmates, George Savas, tried to escape. The attempt took place in May 1997 and resulted in Malat being moved to a higher security prison. Authorities apparently knew the two were going to try and escape several weeks beforehand and thought of the plan before it was in action. After Malat was moved to Goulburn Maximum Security Prison, Savas killed himself in his cell. As of 2003, Australian officials were trying to link Malat to several missing nurses. In 2010, bones were found near the site of Malat's other murders, though police debate whether he was responsible for them, and in 2013, a police commissioner said he believes the body of an 18-year-old found stabbed and shot is possibly another victim. Many years later, Michael Malat, Ivan's great-nephew, and his friend Cohen Klein, both 19, killed 17-year-old David Orktoloni in Belanglo State Forest in 2010. Orktoloni was hit in the head with an axe and left close to where some of Ivan's victims were found. A cell phone recording of the axe hitting Orktoloni was played in court, and Michael told the judge, Yeah, murder's what the Malats do. Michael received 43 years in prison, while Klein received 32 years. In 2015, Malat's nephew sold a book, a collection of letters Malat had sent him while he was in jail. Alistair Shipsey, Malat's nephew, had been communicating with the killer since he was put in prison. The collection of 94 letters was sold, framing Malat as an innocent man and detailed his stay in prison, including an incident where he cut off his own finger with a plastic butter knife. 
On the 27th of October 2019, Milat died from esophagus and stomach cancer at 4.07am within the hospital wing at Long Bay Correctional Centre. He was 74 years old. Despite its already eerie appearance, Belanglo State Forest, where the backpacker murders took place, it is believed that the area is now haunted. A local company operating ghost tours was quickly shut down in 2015, with locals reporting its bad taste as many of the Malats victims' families were still alive. Whether the forest is haunted or not, the tour group's advertising was what caused the backlash, stating it was insensitive. Come with us to Belanglo, where Ivan Malat buried the bodies of his victims. Once you enter Belanglo State Forest, you may never come out. And what about you? Would you dare to go backpacking in the Belanglo State Forest? Was this true horror story real or not? You know what to do, that five-star review. Or you can swing by YouTube to comment and like. Now, if you want to get more personal and scare me with your tales of horrors, take a ride on the wild side and share them on my subreddit, True Horror Podcast. Until next time, remember that sometimes things you see in the shadows are more than just shadows. Shadows.